Hi, Sarah. Hi, how you doing? It's a little bit of a busy time for me. You're having a busy week. I'm having a busy week. Listen, here's the thing about about jobs. <laughs> here's what I don't understand about jobs. Like, no one wants to go on a retreat with their work people, with their work friends. Okay, believe it or not, though, my personal work retreat was terrific, and this is why, because it's this one committee full of people that I really love, and we went out the night before and spent the night in a hotel in the suburbs, and we went to dinner and I'm going to tell you, we had a great meal with the worst service I've ever had. And it was, like, comically bad. But there were six of us, so we just figured she was like, whatever, I'm going to get my tip. <laughs> you know what I mean? But at one point, um, we were ordering, like, our, like, kind of appetizers, like, first course. And I was like, I'll have a Caesar salad. And the waitress was reading her text on her Apple Watch. <gasps> No, she was not. And then kind of paused and was like, say it again. And I was like, a Caesar, a Caesar salad. salad. <laughs> it was, and that was like not even honestly the worst of it. It was, yeah, it was something else. So sometimes that happens. That sounds lovely. A hotel in the suburbs. I one time had to go to a literal campground. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And stay in an actual campground cabin no with people i worked <laughs> with no and it was terrible no and i was terrible. didn't want to no and at the end i immediately started looking for another job <laughs> <laughs> so this is just a warning to all of you out there who want to keep your good workers maybe don't make them go to a cabin in the woods we were in Oak Brook, and there is this. We stayed at this Hyatt Lodge where there was an actual like lap pool, and I've got to tell you, it was delightful. And I asked for a room right by the pool, and I like got up in the morning in my bathing suit and went to the pool, and then like didn't even have to shower in the locker room. I just went back to my room because it was right there. It was great. I would like someone to keep a list of all of the best because you know hotel pools you usually just like splash around in. Mm. This was a full-on, you had lane lines. Wow, that is impressive. Yeah, I was like, this is the information I need. Where can I swim laps at your Well, Jen, shout it out. What's this hotel? It is the Hyatt Lodge in Oak Brook, Oak Brook, Illinois. Oh, you just said that. Yes. Sorry, I wasn't listening. I was looking at my text messages on my Apple Watch. (laughs) Sure, of course. (laughs) Anyway, welcome everyone to Faded Mates. I am Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. And this week, we are reading Something About You by Julie James. It is the first in her FBI FBI, US US Attorney series. Yeah. And this book, what was the year this book came out? 2010? Wow, really? Uh I'm old. I know. Julie James, you are not old. I am old. Listen, I forgot... How much I absolutely love this series. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's I knew great. we've been talking about doing a Julie James book for a long time because you've been looking for a Chicago book to do. Yes. And like we have talked about doing a Chicago interstitial, which I think would be really fun. And we should probably do a New York interstitial too It'll sometime. Be really fun. Like as yes. like a fun little like shout out yeah. to our hometowns. But um This series, which is set in Chicago at the field office for the Chicago FBI, the Chicago, the FBI's Chicago field office, 
and the U.S. Attorney's Office. For Northern Illinois. I mean, look, what's crazy about this is that no one has come up with this idea before or since. Like, this is just, it's so perfect because it's a bunch of, like, broody, like, scarred (laughs) FBI guys and a bunch of, like, whip-smart, like, heroines who work for the U.S., the District Attorney and the U.S. Attorney. And it's great. So the setup of Something About You. Can we just talk for a second about Julie James? Because she actually doesn't have a huge backlist. Literally this morning we discovered this because in my mind, Julie has been writing forever. Not because she feels old school to me, but because like as long as I have been writing, people have been talking about how great Julie is. Well, and there she's so self-assured. I kind of feel like, you know, sometimes a debut can... Well, this is her debut. This is her debut. It's... And it's terrific. Great. Yeah. I mean, you know what? Nine Rules is also terrific. Like, there are some people who just come right out of the gates. Same year, 2010. There's something in the water. So, and her latest, though, it's been a while, is um, also part of this series. I also loved it. Um, it's called The Thing About Love. Mm-hmm. That it has it that high heel. Yeah, it has the, the high heel on lollipop. it. Lollipop. And the reason I just want to talk about that for a quick second before we talk about something about you is that was the first romance I ever bought at 57 Street Books. That book was in trade paperback. It was in trade paperback. Back before it was cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was not even housed. There was no romance section. It was kind of in like a new fiction, but over by like mysteries and thrillers. And well, let's put a pin in that. Let's talk about, let's do the overview And then come back to why I think it's so smart, this series. Something About You is a, a, it's not really a second chance, I guess, in some ways. It's like a little faded Matesy. Like, it's like the one that got away. Yeah. So Cameron Lind is in um, AUSA, and she is spending the night at the peninsula in Chicago. wait a second. That's a hot thing you just said. The assistant U.S. attorney. AUSA. Is that a thing we say? I think I think so. That, or does that happen in Prokop's house? Well, I listened to the audiobook and I felt like maybe because I was listening to the audiobook again this week. I like no, I like it. I, I I found that very sexy when you dropped that. Okay, I don't know if I just made that up, but that's what I'm going to call her. Listen, anyway, I like it. Do it again. Say it again. <laughs> She's staying at the Peninsula, which is a fancy Chicago hotel because her hardwood floors are getting redone. Which does, in fact, I just had my hardwood floors redone before we moved in. It takes. 24 to 48 hours, you got to not walk on them. Right. And so she decides to treat herself to, like, a fancy hotel where she can go to the spa and have, like, a really nice, you know, couple of nights. So, but the couple in the room next to her are having noisy sex. Like, insane. (laughs) Yeah. Very loud wall banging sex. And she is kind of like, I cannot believe I'm spending this much per night to be listening to this. So just as she's sort of like, okay, I'm getting ready to call security – she it, it quiets down. She falls back asleep, and then it starts up again. So she just immediately calls security, and then like kind of hears the door opening and goes out and looks and sees a man walking by. And then security comes, and it turns out that the woman has been murdered. She has been an ear witness to a murder, and um, the FBI agent who shows up to investigate is none other than Jack Palace. Uh. I know. Great name. Look, Jack is a great romance hero name. Yeah, It really is. There should be more Jacks. 
<laughs> he has been furious with Cameron ever since three years earlier. She, He thinks she declined to essentially prosecute a case that he literally put his life on. Well, he was an undercover agent trying right. to infiltrate a mobster in uh, Chicago, and yeah. he got— he he his cover was blown when the stupid DEA sent in their own undercover agent. I love it. I love when they I mean, all get all, the other alphabets. It all works like it's so smart. Look, Julie clearly has a real line into this world because it all feels so right. Yeah. Um, but the stupid DEA tried to send in their own undercover agent, and then he had to try and get the undercover agent out without killing him, and it was like a big whatever, and then he blew his cover and was tortured by the mob. Yeah, for two and days. And then they were going to prosecute. They thought they had enough to prosecute this guy, and uh, and the um, – the U.S. Attorney's Office decided, or or Cameron's boss, the decided, U.S. Attorney, the U, the USA, the see, USA, I, exactly. I don't think it really kind of works the same way. Yeah. It doesn't work the same way. It's not as hot. But um, he, her boss Silas, uh, decides that he is not. He does not have enough to prosecute this guy in the mob, and and he sends her essentially to deliver yeah, this message. Throws her under the bus. Yeah, and it's and the instructions are: you say that we're not doing it, and that's it. You cannot give any more information. That is our policy here in the office. And Jack thinks that she made the call, and he gets caught essentially in like on film saying that she has her head up her ass, and so he gets demoted. Yeah, he, gives and, an, uh, he not just yeah. caught; he gives yeah. an. Oh, on, that's right. Like he gives a blah blah blah. Why can I not, not? an interview? Really? Like he's, he like it's, walks out of the courthouse or wherever, yes. and, and there the media is like, "Jack, there. Jack, what's happening?" And he's like, "You know, she has her head up her ass," and he gets demoted essentially to 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 Nebraska. <laughs> not that we don't love Nebraska for anybody who lives in Nebraska. Listen, if you're, hey, listen, if you're a Fata Mates listener and you live in Nebraska, will you let us know? Because I don't think I've ever met a reader from Nebraska or a listener. I don't know if I have either, but I... little side thing. I had a boyfriend in high school, fun fact, who is from Lincoln, Nebraska. But he is disappeared now. Maybe he's still in Lincoln. I hear it's a cool town. Anyway, here's the thing. (laughs) It's a side thing. Listen, there's nothing really... Like, little Midwestern... This podcast is free. It's fine. (laughs) Okay, so he's back. He has landed this case. is back. And he is basically like, I cannot believe I'm in the position of having to protect this woman who I cannot fucking stand, except, oops, I think she's super hot and I'm into her. Yeah. I mean, he 100% can stand her. And then, okay, so then it, that's all you need to know. That's the that's the gist of it. So yeah. then, here's what's great about this. This setup is very, pl- like, it could be very plotty. Right? Right. Because there are all these different moving parts. Um, Cameron works for the the U.S. District Attorney's Office, and she is – it's clear that there's something going on with the boss who – you know, there are lots of different characters who are all sort of plugged into this story and ultimately going to have their hands in whatever the plot is. But – Julie doesn't hold anything back from the reader from the jump, right? So we see – it's really – it's great, and what I love about it is I remember – and I can't – I wish I could remember which, you know, author told me this at what point in my early career. But there's – somebody once told me, like, 
don't hold anything back. Like put, reveal the secrets that you have when you have them and trust that, you know, additional conflict will come. And I think one of the challenges with romantic suspense often is that we are locked into a kind of whodunit situation from the jump in romantic suspense. And so, like, we can't find out who the big bad villain is until 75% of the way through the book. But this isn't romantic suspense. She takes the romantic suspense wrapper and she, like, delivers it to the contemporary romance. And so we see, you know, there are chapters or scenes that are from the villain's perspective. So we know within like, by like 25% of the way through the book, you know who did it. Right. And then you're, it's kind of just a question of like, she strips away the suspense piece. Right. So that we are really able to focus on these two characters having their second chance at it. Right. And I was, it was, so it was really fascinating because there were a couple things about this book that felt, um, like if it was written now, I'm not sure the same decisions were get made. And one of them is the, there's a few times. So the killer's name is Grant. It doesn't matter. Right. Like if it, like she reveals it. So it's not really a spoiler. Um, we do, we get, we get some chapters from his point of view. Um, uh, she has uh, Cameron has two best friends, Amy and Colin. There's even a couple times where Colin is a point of view character, where you know this is, and this is something that I think has really, for the most part, fallen by the wayside. Yeah, even like tertiary characters as yeah, or secondary right? characters as. POV right. Characters. And even, even like we've talked about this with Clapus, right? That there are times there will be just a little smidgen of information that comes from someone else around them. And you know what? It's not bad storytelling. Like there's sometimes that you have this, okay, this outsider knows something, or there's some observation that only, you know, our two characters are too close to it. They can't see it. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was, so it was really interesting essentially to just have a chapter, one that's like like, okay, I'm the friend watching them fall in love, but a whole, a couple of times, a whole chapter is like, okay, here's the machinations of yeah. our villain. Because it, if you didn't deliver it that way, you'd have to deliver it as an info yes. dump, right? Yep. So like exactly. putting it on the page through the lens of a second, of a secondary character is really very smart Yeah, because the story actually isn't about Cameron and Jack figuring out who killed the woman in the hotel room next door. That is just the gas in the engine. Like, there is no reason. It's fossils. Like, there's no reason for us to care about that except the way that it drives Cameron and Jack together. And it's so more than, I think, any book that we've read so far. It really shows what you and I have talked about so much about like a romance novel's primary, like primary purpose is the romance. And so what ends up happening is you have, of course, right, the gas in the engine is this murder. It's the fact that she has seen this person, but she can't identify him. So they can't catch him and put him in jail he is out there and he's connected to a very powerful man. He, the the woman in the hotel room next door was an escort who was spending the night with a United States senator. So you know that there is there are people who have access to 
No, there's no way to keep secret that Cameron is involved in this. So there, you know, she has a police detail and then like somebody accesses the house and it becomes clear she needs somebody to live in her house with her. And like, who on who earth would that be? <laughs> I know, Jack. I think it's, it's Jack. It's not going to be Jack's hot partner who is charming oh, yeah. and funny Super and cute. perfect, yeah. right? Yes. It's going to be Jack. And so each, each moment that... Each moment in the text that amps up the romance is just pulling from these external plots. Um, There's also this external, there's kind of an an ongoing, she has these two best friends. One of them is getting married. So there's this wedding. She's the best, she's the best man. She's the um, maid of honor in this wedding. So like there's that. And it adds this level of like, well, now she has to go to this wedding. So like, who's going to keep her safe at this wedding? And obviously Jack is her plus one. So it it's just such a smart way of using a romantic suspense plot without it being romantic suspense. As a contemporary romance plot. I loved it. Okay, if you take away the who done it aspect, at some point we still have to know who committed the crime, right? Like that has to be built into the system. And you have to meet the villain, right? Yes. Like, you can't right. just be like, oh, and now the villain is here 30 but don't pages worry. from the end of the book. Like, right. We have to know him. And so that's the useful secondary plot, secondary POV. Now, I will say the other thing that felt like a little dated is, you know, these these are books that really valorize police, you know, like sort of the carceral state. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know, she's a prosecutor. So, I mean, you have to really kind of know that going in. But Right. He works for the FBI. They're like good guys and bad guys. Like, you know, I don't really want to talk about any of that. Like, just know that it's there. It was interesting to kind of read it. It felt a little dated in that way. But the other thing that I thought was really smart about it is then if if you're de-emphasizing the whodunit part, then all of the, like, law enforcement cops, judges, or co-workers just get to be characters. So there's this really funny, like truly funny, ongoing gambit where her police protection, the guys who are doing her 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 protection, right, because she's a, a, the one eyewitness in this, like, big murder case, are constantly, like, sort of, like, yapping it up about, like, her dating life. And, like, there's, like, a, a bachelorette party happening in her house. We better go knock on the door now. Like, they're giving Jack all this information about, like, what what kind of games they're going to be playing. And, and it was that instead of it seeming, like, you can only do that if we already know who committed the crime, right? Because otherwise they just feel like buffoons. And instead, right, like then all of these like kind of like the silly kind of funny parts of this can just be that way because it doesn't matter who the bad guy is, right? So I found myself really thinking that that was also a pretty smart way of essentially like de-emphasizing. Right, this isn't a thriller. Right? No. Right. This is just, it's a contemporary romance with this like rapper. Right. And uh, it's just, it's deeply charming. Like the way, the structure of it, the fact that, um, you know, one of the things that I think contemporary, modern romance, like romance that we're reading right now, right? Yeah. Romance in 2020. So we're seeing fewer and fewer communities of people in cis het white contemporary romance, if that makes sense. And what I mean by that is this book has this very rich 
community. Like, um, she has her friends. He has her. He has his partner. Like, there are. There's this like big wedding happening, and and it feels like there is a rich. And she has you know her work people. Like, there's just there are people all over the place supporting these characters, even to the point, even the the Chicago police who are sitting in the car outside, like, keeping an eye on her front door. Like, they're, like, they, like, know what she's up to. At one point, she goes on a date with some guy that she met in, a, in the At mall. Bloomingdale's. Right. And, like, and they're, like, oh, she's on a date. Like, there's just, like, this very, co- there's this really rich community of different characters that I think we are seeing fewer and fewer of these communities in certain kinds of contemporary romance right now. And I started to really think about that. Like, what is that? Why is that? And maybe you disagree with me. I'm just, I'm really starting to think about that, though. I was thinking about it, too, with this book. And I was coming at it from kind of a different perspective, which is, I feel like there was a very kind of long-standing romance tradition where in contemporary romance, right? Again, white cisgendered, right? Where um, the community uh, the main characters have were always comprised of friends and people like in their work around their age. And there was like almost zero family. Mm. And I feel like now you are far more likely to get family in a romance. I mean, like, like, and I mean like parents, you know, people giving advice, uh, you know, and I'm not saying it's like bad or good. It's just like an interesting kind of dynamic to me. And there was like in a weird way, this was like another way in which this felt kind of like old school. Was yeah, there are, like, no, there are no parents. No parents. I mean, her parents are dead. We know what happened to them. And she's sad about her dad that there's no siblings. There's no cousins. It's just like. You know, the it's like I am a city person living in the city surrounded by the people I have met in the city, the people I work with. There's something about it that feels different. And part of it, I think, is that there is so much time on page with these other people, which is fascinating to me because you and I have talked so much over the last, you know, however many years about how, like, we just want the books to be the two characters together on page. But, like, I didn't feel that way in this book. I felt like I really enjoyed the moments where they were with other people. This episode of Fate of Mates is sponsored by Avon Books, publishers of Lindsay Sands' Immortal Rising, which is a return of her famous Argonaut series, and right up the alley of anyone looking for a vampire romance. Stephanie McGill is our heroine. She was attacked and turned when she was just a teenager. She has some unusual vampire abilities, which means most normal vampires or men are not right for her. You know who is right for her, Sarah? A genetically altered hero. I can't get enough of it. His name is Thorn. He is not an immortal or immortal. He just needs someplace safe to land. Stephanie, open your arms. Someone to love. (laughs) However, the bad scientist who created Thorn in his lab is now after Stephanie. What 
is going to happen. Wait, you know what we got to do? We have to do an interstitial about mad scientists because there are so many good mad scientist villains, and I'm so glad that Lindsay is entering one into the canon. Into the vampire canon. Absolutely. What a great crossover. Big fan. You can find more about Immortal Rising at her website, uh, lindsaysands.net. That's L-Y-N-S-A-Y-S-A-N-D-S dot net. You can find Immortal Rising in print, ebook, and audio wherever books are sold. And thanks to Avon for sponsoring the episode. I have been on record for, I have this very strange thing, and I like listen to myself talk about work in romance, and I have like two very strong things. There's one part of me that's like, I love it when people have interesting jobs. I want that. Uh Right? That's like, I talk a lot about how I came up at a time where that was like really common. Uh And then I'm also on record for saying, fuck this. I hate this fossil business. Uh And I think, I think what this book did was it helped me really kind of talk about what I think is going on. So in this book, both for Cameron and Jack, their work is a part of the plot in a real way. Mm. And their work is a big part of like who they are in a real way. Mm -hmm. What I kind of see when I talk about fossils though, right? What I'm saying is you are telling me unimportant things about them at work. You're not telling me about how their work is, like, who they are as a person or as a character. You're just, like, giving me, like, dumb details about, like, spreadsheets and stuff, right? And I think that that's – there's part of me that's, like, I am interested in work, in in romance, when it's about, like, who are you as a person? And I feel like there's a lot of romances where work is just a pretext for getting people together – And then there's never any mention of it. And I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one is a lot of women's jobs now in romance are as assistants. Mm -hmm. And those jobs are never written about in a way that's like, this is work that's meaningful to me or I'm good at it or whatever. It's just like now the rich CEO thinks I'm hot. And look, I we did a whole boss assistant one. I kind of was like, I think it's hot, right? I'm, I don't know. Like, I, I'm a little, like, in my own head about it because somehow there's a difference, right? Because this sort of layers onto what we were talking about in um, the vampire romance interstitial about um, that TikTok, the, mm-hmm. the woman on TikTok, um, Virgo, like, Beyonce, who talked about... Um, how she thinks the backlash from the pandemic is going to be like something to do with work. Like what we are going to see in media is going to be some sort of like dialogue with the way that we think about ourselves as workers, like, and what work looks like. I wonder if there's something to this idea of like the boring job in romance. And now we're kind of down a different rabbit hole. This is not about Julie James. Um, right. But but the the kind of, uninteresting job in romance is really about us saying like work isn't your whole life which is tough for uh new englanders hello and catholics us hello like people like there are whole swaths of like cultures where like work is the whole identity that we we are wrapped up in but i um I think I think that is a conversation that's being had actually publicly with full throats 
all over the place between people who are smarter than me. But also, I, I, off, I wonder, you know, that I've been thinking yeah. about so much of like why these books are so popular right now. And I do think there's something here about work not being essential, like that that shouldn't be the the core of the way we live. And at the same time, right, like this book is really, to use some Catholic language, like her, her job as a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office is truly like a vocation. Yeah. She was working at a big corporate law firm and pulling down a ton of money a year. And then her father was a cop, a beat cop who got killed on the job. And she really was like, I want to, like, make a difference. And so, you know, there's a way in which her work is driven instead by something that's, like, personally meaningful. And, look, I think that there's – if so it's like this – Again, and I, I understand, I, I want to say, I understand everyone listening, they're like, Jen doesn't know what she's talking about. And I will admit that it is confusing even to me. Wait, why do I'm people like, not know that what they're, what? Well, because I, I really feel like I'm like, here I am on business being like, work is boring in books if it's just fossils. And also like, I want you to have an interesting uh. job that you think is meaningful to you. But I think, you know what, like often it's like, if your interesting job is meaningful to you and is the basis of the plot. And that's what this book is doing so perfectly. So, you know, I I don't know. I found myself thinking a lot about, like, her job and, and his job, too. Like, you know, he essentially, she saves his job for him. Like, Silas is like, I want him after the, you know, three years ago, I want him out of the FBI. And she goes to essentially, like, say, just, like, don't do that. And he instead gets sent to, to Nebraska. But there's, like, real, like, dignity in the fact that, like, both of them think their job is important, that the work they do is mm-hmm. important, that neither of their jobs is primary. Well, and the happily ever after for her ends with her becoming U.S. attorney. Like, and there's essentially no, becoming his boss yeah. in some ways. He report, <laughs> the FBI reports to the U.S. Attorney's Office, right? Hot. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, can we talk about that? Can we talk yeah. about that? Through, let's get back to the book. So I love that that piece. And look, of course, this is like a little bit of a trope in romance. It makes sense. Like, whatever happened, whatever the misunderstanding that split them apart three years ago off page is a is a full misunderstanding. He does not understand what went down. And so when he comes back from Nebraska ready, like, you know, teeth bared, ready <laughs> ready to, you know, taste her blood in her throat, as someone might say, in his throat, the truth is that he does not understand that she went to the mat for him to make sure that he did not get fired, right? And right. What I love about this moment is that we get a glimpse, not of the conversation with Silas, we had a glimpse of the relationship that they might have had. These two who, like, had been dancing around each other while they were investigating this, while they were putting together the case for this mobster, and... We're in her POV in the past, three years ago, and and we see her, like, have 
feelings for him. Like, she really thinks it could happen. And then it switches to his POV three years in the past. And she walks into his office and she is like, ready to tell him the truth about, you know, what happened. She's ready to tell him that the, the district attorney is dropping dropping the case. And there is a moment where he touches her and he's yeah. like, and it's like the moment that in another romance novel would happen at 75%. Right. Right? Before the bottom drops out beneath them. And it's so sexy and so romantic. And he's like, whatever this is, we'll get through it. Because, like, he was really in it to win it back then. And it is great. It's a great moment where she delivers just a straight shot of emotion to the reader. Suddenly, we feel deeply invested in these two characters who cannot stand each other when they are in the room <laughs> together. Like, And suddenly, with that one tiny glimpse of a flashback, we see the whole field. And it is really superior writing. When I edit, I like nine times out of 10, I'm like, get rid of these flashbacks. I hate, I mean, it's always like, what is the flashback doing that cannot be done in real time? And I think Julie James is a real master of it. And if you want to see another example of it, because obviously you just gave a a great explanation of it there, is um, the one with the high heel on the cover, the thing about love, Mm -hmm. has the two of them essentially enemies to lovers back when they were in FBI school. And it's these flashbacks where they literally, it's like one, the same incident from both of their points of view. Perfect. That's a perfect flashback. Yes. The or, I mean, you can also do that from a writing perspective. You can do that where, like, one person delivers the, like, understanding of how the whole situation went down in current in the current timeline of the book. Mm-hmm. And then you flash back to the other POV only. And so you can see it. The POV, it becomes one of those situations. Right now there's a lot of discussion in the world about, like, single versus dual POV. Like, in flashbacks, dual POV just – it work, it does so much more work. You have the the main romance, but, you know, it's kind of this question of, like, okay, so I've got characters with a backstory. I have a villain, and I want to avoid, at the end, him explain everything, <laughs> right? So it's, like, a lot of really interesting choices get made that make this such a fun read. I mean, you know, I found myself thinking, I think it's, like, chapter seven where we get, like, this point of view from Grant where he essentially, like, lays out the whole thing, how it happened. And I was like, Yeah, because we get his POV of the murder. Yes. And why? And, like, motive and essentially everything that happened. Which is also rare. Like, yeah. In romantic suspense, when you get a villain's point of view, you get, like, snidely whiplashy, like, oh, it's, I'm gonna kill everyone. <laughs> right. A, like, Bond That's villain type stuff. That's not how Grant is. Grant is, like, shit went down. It all went sideways. Like, yeah. it didn't have to be the way that it was, but now it is that way, and I gotta fix it. Look, we talk about evolution and growth of characters all the time, main characters. Mm. What you see in him even though it's limited, is, like, devolving, right? Like, from that moment where choices get made, he's spiraling, but in a way that is, like, negative, right? Like, against society, but one that we see that he enjoys, where he's, like, this is great. He was right there on a knife's point. 
Yes. And, and he, he toppled over. And again, it's, but it's not like diabolical. It's not like, you know, it's just interesting. It's a care, it's character work. Right. It does go back to, and I know you said you didn't want to talk about it and, and we don't have to do a deep dive on it, but, um, it is this kind of question of nobility too, though, right? Because Grant, so you have your FBI hero, your Mm -hmm. U.S. attorney heroine, Chicago Police Department, which is, you know, the people who we interact with at the Chicago Police are, like, decent people. Good guys. Watching this white lady on the north side. Yeah. (laughs) You have the U.S. attorney, who's a garbage person in league with the mob. And then you have Grant, the villain, who is a United States senator's personal security guard, right? So he's not a public official. He's not a defender of, I mean, I don't even know what we call these people, but like he's not, he doesn't carry a gun for a living for for society. Secret service right. or something. Right. He carries a gun for a living for this one guy he's paid as a private security detail. And I think there's something here about like the difference between like the nobility, and I'm like putting air quotes around it, of like the people who serve and protect capital S, capital P, and the people, the, like, there's some sort of ignobility to this private serving and protecting lowercase s, lowercase p. Well, and they're both, he and Jack, both Grant and Jack are Mm ex-military, right? Different branches, doesn't matter, but it's also kind of this, like, yeah, like mercenaries versus, and, and again, some of that I will admit, I... When I read this in 2010, I was like, oh, yeah, right? Like, the good cop narrative was so strong. It was – it was. I didn't, I didn't find it offensive or anything, but I would say it's – there. this is a different it's – a, it's a book that feels out of time now. It does, although I am very grateful for the fact that, like, the U.S. attorney is not a, a good guy. Like, right. I think there are moments in these – in all of these books where, like, she is – yeah. It's hard, Corruption. right? Like, it's, you know better, you do better. And I think back then, what Julie James was doing was sort of acknowledging that there were bad apples. In twenty in 2010, the books were, there are more good apples than there are bad. And now I feel like in 2020, it's, there are more bad apples than there are good. And it's a tricky balance. When the senator appears at the end. Yeah. The person who essentially, like, with his affairs, because he yeah, discovers Viagra, the whole thing. causes the whole thing to happen, he's just like, yeah, I, I just feel terrible about it. And you're like, wait, really? That's it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's a and, little bit like deus ex machina at the end with the center. Sure. Which is, but, you, know, you know, fine. But I, that part, I, I think either way, if you're a writer and you're kind of, like, looking for other ways to incorporate a suspense plot without it taking over your romance plot, you should be reading this book. Yeah. I mean, I do think, like, gas in the engine is the yes. way to think about this. Like, you just need enough gas in the The senator's gas in the engine. Like, at the end, we have to tie it up. But it's not a sen- that's not the story you're here for. So you don't care. Like, I mean, I do. I feel bad for that, you know, poor dead lady in the room next door. <laughs> Although she was pretty terrible, so <laughs> you know, I mean, there's she was a blackmailing. Lot. She was yeah, blackmail the senator. There's a lot everybody. of crime here, and I think it's really fascinating how 
how many crimes there are layered on top of each other to get these two idiots together. Well, and I actually ended up really liking her better than Grant, right? In the the because you know he flashes back to essentially how they came up with a plan to yeah, and blackmail she's like, the senator. Fuck you! I did everything. I did all the work, and you want half the money? Like, and I mean, look, about nothing. Agreed. <laughs> that lady did a lot of work that night. She did all the work. <laughs> She did all the work. Too much work. Too much work. So plotting-wise, it's great. But Cameron and Jack are a great— Oh, they're real sexy. The sexual tension between them. Because there isn't a ton of sex in these books. No. mm -mm, Not at all. I mean, it's on page, but— And even when it gets to the sex, it's like a page and a half. You know what this reminded me of, though? It's not like McLean. No, plus there's a lot of kissing though. There's a mm, lot of like, I know. And, like and urgent it, kissing. Oh, I love that so I know, it's much. Real hot, right? And that will keep that. Talk about gas in the tank, right? Like that keeps me going. Where it's just this whole like, you know, he's like leaning, and then like the cops are gonna come up, so he has to walk away. And this week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Kelly Kane, author of An Acquired Taste. We are big fans of uh, enemies, lovers, romances here at Faded Mates, and this really has a pretty crackerjack setup. The <laughs> heroine of this book is a farm-to-table chef, so you know I'm just already in. And she works in her mother's restaurant, and she has this kind of like very intense emotional relationship with food, and the hero is a uh, restaurant royalty kind of... He was born with a Michelin star hanging out of his mouth. Here's <laughs> the thing I love, everybody. You gotta love a book that has a beautiful food but messy family dynamics. Look at that. That's us together. <laughs> exactly. I love beautiful food. You love messy family dynamics. Amazing. Anyway, these two have been rivals since culinary school. Now they are official rivals on national television in a reality TV show, uh, cooking reality TV show, Top Chef style. What ensues is fiery as a spicy kitchen dish. You can find more information about an acquired taste at Kelly's website, kellycaneauthor.com, or follow her on all socials at Kelly Kane Author. An acquired taste is available in print, ebook, and audio. And it's the first in a three book series. To learn more about Kelly or about any of our sponsors, please visit our show notes where you can find everything all the time because Jen is on top of it. Thank you to Kelly Kane for sponsoring this week's episode. Listen, you know what I love? I'm just trash. I'm trash for it. (laughs) I know I'm not supposed to love violence. I know I'm not, but I do. And I'm sorry, I just do. But like when he's tortured by the mob and they like shove a knife through his arm to like pin him to the chair and then he rips it out and like (laughs) kills someone to get out of there. And I'm like, that's hot. That whole thing is hot. What's wrong with me? We were raised in America. So he also, though, like, saves Cameron, right? Like, the bad guy, uh, like, breaks into her home, and he discovers that. He jumps and he, off a, like, balcony. He, first he jumps through, like, a French door. Yeah. Right? And then he, like, you know, I mean, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of 
jumping like, action in this movie. Yeah, in this movie. There's a lot of action in this movie. There is a lot of everybody. action in it. It's the kind. This is the thing. Hollywood. If you are listening, you're definitely not. But if you are. Yeah. All we want is kissing with the action. Like, you already are making these movies. <laughs> Just make people hot for each other in them. <laughs> I know. I know. It was so Just, delightful. Like, just add another, add a, like, attractive second character. Beautiful people who blow things and up. let them bang and it kiss out. Else. And then jump off balconies. <laughs> This is all we want, everybody. It's all we want. And if you if you like this, a really great movie was called The Old Guard, and it was essentially about these kind of like immortals. But there's these two men who of their little band who are in love with each other, and at the end, like somebody's kind of like you know one of the bad guys is like, "Oh, do you love him?" Like it's totally like homophobic, and the and the guy just is like, "I do love him," and it's this like really amazing speech where he's like, "You know nothing about love," and I was like. This is a great action movie with this, like, staunch yeah. defense of love and this beautiful relationship between these people. Like, this is what I want. Literally all I want. Yeah. Like, make me the lost city again. <laughs> like, I don't understand. <laughs> that was a great, by the way, we haven't talked about that on the episode, on the pod. That was a really fun movie. Everybody should go watch it. I also particularly enjoyed how, like, halfway through the movie, there is a full monologue about why romance novels are amazing. I know. <laughs> I was like. Perfect. No right? notes. No notes. Channing Tatum. No notes. <laughs> Amazing. So that I think is the other thing that this book does really well is like sexual tension, essentially, right? Like not really will they, won't they? That's not what it was. No, because of course they will. I was thinking about right. that too. The like once they commit to each other and it happens. Yeah. Oh, it's so hot though. The way again, it's this great, as you said, like sexual tension, they don't need a breakup or like the internal conflict of will we or won't we. The conflict between them is you are in danger and my job is to keep you safe. My God, I love that. It's like, yeah, right. I can't, I can't fuck you in this hotel room because if I do, all I'm going to want to do is fuck you for the rest of the weekend and I need to protect you. I have to focus on you surviving. And I'm like, I mean, my pants just flow right off my body. Like, it's so good. Yeah, it's amazing. And I just want this for everyone, including myself. (laughs) (laughs) So I really, okay, so here's the other thing I really liked about, I liked about this book, which is, so Cameron is 32, um, Jack's like 34 or 35. There's a lot of like nods to like friendship, like the difficulties of like modern dating, right? Like it felt really, I don't know, like this is a book when I read it at the time, like I was like, it just feels like life feels, right? Um, in particular, Cameron's friend, and I was really laughing about this. So Cameron has two best friends that they've known since co- since college. It's Colin and Amy. Colin and his boyfriend are sort of on a breakup, and um, he is a sports writer. And then Amy is essentially like this bridezilla character, right? But she's not like an asshole. And I also thought it was really funny. I don't, we never meet Amy's Soon to be husband. Husband, just, forget it. Who cares about him? Who cares? But not doesn't that feel real? I mean, like when your best friend from college gets married, you're like, whoever. I don't care. Whoever. About that guy. <laughs> Does he impact me in some way? Because I saw you first. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And and so 
it's interesting because, you know, like there a lot of the things that then kind of bring Jack and um, Cameron closer together are kind of either driven by the obviously the investigation or also like the wedding. So there's a night that she's giving the spatulette party. They're all going to go out. Oh my God. And right. And Jack is like, and her cousins, Amy's cousins want strippers. Yes. (laughs) Right. And Amy has of course said like, if there are strippers, I will like never forgive you. And I will pay you back threefold if you ever get married. So don't do it. Right. So there's, and there's the greatest part is this one part where the cousins come in and they say to Cameron, um, like, you know, where are the strippers? <laughs> and she's like, I told you we weren't doing that. And she was like, they were like, wait, are you serious? We thought you were kidding. <laughs> and they're, they're like, the- well, they offered help pay. And Cameron thinks, oh, this is the thing they want to help pay for. <laughs> right? But then the doorbell rings and it's Jack and his adorable partner. Yes. <laughs> and they're like, oh. Yeah, great. You got them. Look at how hot these guys are. What do you, what's, what's your daily rate? <laughs> you know? <laughs> So there's a lot of like it's I really mean, charming. It's a great, yes, really fun. Charming word. is a great word for it. Um, can we talk about Colin being a sports writer? Yes, because so there's this great so there's this moment kind of like early in the book where you know there are police officers sitting outside the house or like I can't remember quite the way that it's set up, but basically it's we're in the POV of the police officers is a good example, right? And they see Cameron and Colin like go into her house and. One of them is reading the paper, and he turns the paper, and he says, oh, look, that's, like, this is the same guy. And it's just, it's kind of dropped as, like, a, what is this? Like, this is, like, there's a revelation here that we don't understand as the reader. Well, turns out Colin is a sports writer. He writes the sports column, he writes a sports column about, like, it's basically like that blog, Dear, Dear Author, Author, but it's like right. Dear Coach, where he tells the coaches what they're doing wrong, which I think is very funny, but also felt extremely Chicago. Oh, yes, completely. Like, it did not feel to me like this really could happen in any other city in America. Chicago's like, listen, let me tell you how you're doing it wrong. Sit the fuck down. But also sports, right? Oh, like, completely. It felt like- <laughs> completely, right? It felt like this is the only city in the world where, like, this one sports guy could be Would have that literally following. famous to everyone <laughs> for doing this. So do you want to talk about Chicago? Julie James is a Chicagoan. This is a a very great rep. Chica- I mean, Good, right. solid Chicago yes. rep. <laughs> solid Chicago rep. Um, Spiaggia has since closed. I would say that's like the one thing that's they didn't solid. eat weird pizza. <laughs> yeah, right. But there's like one part in particular where they're um, they're leaving Spiaggia on his motorcycle, and they describe right like a, the that part of Lakeshore Drive, and I was like. I mean, I was literally like, I know exactly where you are. It's right by my school. And I was like picturing like the Oak Street underpass, picturing but this part also, of Lakeshore Drive. also, can we talk yeah. about that hot motorcycle ride? Oh, it yeah, came completely. out of nowhere. Sure. And Anticipating she, the whole motor- like, motorcycle club thing. Yeah. Pulls up her skirt. Oh, yeah. Which hot. has a giant slit up the side. Hot. Gets on his motorcycle and then thinks about sex with him all the way home. <laughs> it's a rolling vibrator, Sarah. Why this wouldn't is- you? great and then gets off it and he's like don't look at me like that or i'm gonna have to kiss you into next week that's amazing it's so great promises promises jack (laughs) 
there's so many little moments like that in this book where you feel yes. like I didn't see this coming. Like it came yes. out of nowhere, and now I just it's just like a delightful little moment, like a little yeah. a little bite. I and I found that way too. Like I think the writing's really strong. I think there's like lots of sharp observational moments. You know, I found I listened to it on audio because I was really busy this week, and I, I read this. So I read this back when it came out, and I. I want to talk about the cover for a minute in a second. How was the audio? Oh, it was great. It was great. It was really good. Um, but, you know, like, I just could really enjoy, like, sort of the banter, right? I mean, and just, like, sort of how, like, the the narrator of the audiobook does a very good job with, like, Cameron's inner exasperation with herself when she gets caught up in these, like, daydreams about Jack, right? And I, I thought, it, so, yeah, it was really great. Um, the original cover for this book, though, is super striking, and it is it's so pretty. It's the dress that she is described to wearing to the wedding, mm-hmm. right? So this backless, backless like bright number. pink dress. And I am going to tell you right now, I am one hundred percent sure that I first bought this book because of that cover. Well, that was at the time when contemporaries had that sort of, like, cut-off head. Yes. Like, you can't see the heads of of the characters. He's always in a really, like, perfectly nice tailored suit. Yeah. suit. And she's in this, like, slinky number. Right. Right. But also, I, re- I re- and I remember even at the time, and this was, like, way before I was any part of anything Romancelandia, Really being curious, like deeply curious, how that cover got made. And I remember thinking, I wonder if they just showed her this great cover and she was like, okay, I'm going to write that into the book. Yeah, that's how, I mean, I've written right? a thousand dresses into books because yeah. of covers. Yeah. Right? Or is it that it was so striking, they're like, yeah, we're going to actually like essentially you know, I was like, it no. had to be the other way around, yeah. right? Like, they're not I mean, custom maybe make not. this gown. Maybe right. I'm making I'm making that no. up, but I I gotta say, I think it's probably the other way around. Like, yeah, as somebody who has written any number of books of of dresses into a yes. book, and I think the other thing is, it made me think is like, and maybe this is too far. Like, I love the historical like woman with a dress on the cover. I like your books, right? I will pick them up. Every single fucking time. Uh And so to have there be, like, that brief moment of contemporaries that essentially were, like, calling on that same, right? Like, let me put a beautiful dress on the cover of this book and you're going to want to buy it. I, I, like, so, yeah. And so the one that I was looking now, that now the cover is, like, her wearing green or something. It's like, I was like, what's this? It's interesting because all of those, the first book... Or this whole series, the FBI attorney yeah. series, the first four of them have the had these like yes, really pretty, mm-hmm. like almost clinch covers, right? Like where it was the two of them, no faces, um, just and then suits and dresses. they switched yeah. in 2014. I'm looking at Goodreads right now. In 2014, they switched to. Dress with shoes or yeah. dress. Yeah, they're all shoes. Because all of her characters wear these high heels. That's, that's yes. Her. Right, yeah. right. I thought it was also interesting, though, because I found myself thinking, like, the arc of this, like, their 
okay, this is now back to like Cameron and Jack because they do have sex pretty late. It's like after the wedding, mm-hmm, like eighty percent. He has to protect her. Jen. He has to protect her. He can't risk it. But then oh he can't resist God, that dress. That poor I know, baby. It struck me though that it was very similar to like sort of the arc we saw in um, Jenny Cruzy in Bet Me, right? Which is like lots of kissing, lots mm. of like, like kind of I can't resist you, and I'm just we're gonna kiss and tear each other away from it, and and you know what's interesting is like to me. I mean, I guess it's a slow burn, right? Like, if you're counting the sex as the part, the burn. But it doesn't feel that way when there, we constantly see, like, some sort of escalation, you know? And I and I found, like, there's, a, like, one of the sexiest parts of this book is it's the night before the wedding. And he's like, okay, get in bed. I'm going to, like, tuck you in. But don't – you can't, like – right? He's like, I'm going to kiss like, you. He's like, you got to keep – you got to promise me you'll keep the blanket up. And I was like, that's hot. That's hot. Right? Because it's, oh, it. it's he's really evolving. hot. He's a super yeah. hot hero. I mean, like, textbook hot romance hero. Completely. It was great. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because there's something. Maybe you can help me work this out. Okay. But, like, I really had nostalgia. Yes. Reading this book. And I, I think I had nostalgia for, like, a really uh, a contemporary romance where there was, like, really clear parody in the storylines. Like, yeah. it was both Jack and Cameron's story. Yes. And I think right now, love it or hate it, the the trend in contemporary right now is heroine's story. Yeah. And the hero is not secondary, but, like, lesser in some way. Like, they're ju- it's just not his story as much. And I think that there are a lot of reasons for that. And I think I actually don't – I don't dislike it as a, like, It's just an observation, right. I just really – I had a lot of nostalgia when I was – it felt like a warm blanket in the sense that, like, oh, I'm going home to these books that I loved 12 years ago. So there's parody in them as characters – they're equally, like, well-developed in terms of motive and what they want. And I would say the other thing for me is they are true equals. They're true equals in, like, their their lot in life, in their station, right? And so it's not like it's Fifty Shades. I we've talked. I mean, we're on the record, right? Recently, we've done daddy romances. We've done like age gap romances. We've done boss romances. Like we love a romance where one character holds a ton of power. But right. yeah, there is something like charming about these books that it, they it just delivers. It scratches a completely different itch. Reminds me of like uh, Victoria Dahl. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and others, I mean, that was probably right around the same time, honestly. Yeah, I bet it was, like, the, that 2000 to 2010. Like, essentially, the contemporary before Fifty Shades. Right. When we were when we were saving the contemporary. So that's the thing I kept thinking about, which is why, for example, I love, like, Kate's book so much, right? Or why I love, like, Adriana's contemporary so much is, like, these are books where there's parody, these are books where there is, like, the sense that, like, the two of them are equal. And I'm interested in books with power dynamics as being kind of a driving force, mm-hmm. of course. But I am 
I feel like it's a little bit lost. We've lost something if we also don't have books that explore, okay, the inherent tension that comes between two people who are like equals. Mm-hmm. Right? Who are able to give as good as they get. Sure, to each it's other. a different kind of internal conflict. Like when we talk with the outside world about romance novels, they say to us always, well, don't you get bored because the stories are all the same. And the answer is no, the stories are not all the same. Like the stories are nothing like each other often. And the reality is, is that we need there to be stories that are about like immense power differential and also stories where like the conflict is something slightly different than yeah. That. And I think that's what we are currently struggling with is that we are, I think everybody is chasing a very particular market right now. And that's not, I'm not saying like everyone's chasing the same market. I'm saying like there are maybe two or three very clear markets in contemporary right now. And it feels like you really only see people, see books in, in one of these three buckets or, you know, however many buckets. And this bucket doesn't really exist right now. And it is, except for in the hands of contemporary romance writers who have either have been writing for a very long time. And so, like, like I'm thinking about Jill Shalvis, like, people like that who, you know, generally write this kind of romance. Or, um, you know, a handful of very, very fresh new writers who are writing in this on this branch of the tree. I feel like what this book serves up is this idea that like love and a relationship are just a, um, are not like life changing. It's just like in a life improving, right? Like I'm already a happy, satisfied person. I have like work I enjoy and a community I am part of now finding love is going to be something that is going to be great yeah. for me. As opposed to sometimes in these power dynamics books, it's like I give myself up to it. I've surrendered to it. None of these Julie James heroines are messy at all. No. God, they're no. so accomplished and competent. And, like, the competent heroine is really fascinating to me. And I wish there were more of her. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. But I think in order to write a competent heroine, you have to throw out a number of tropes and traits that are very popular right now. All right. Well, that was pretty great. I really enjoyed it. What are we reading next, Jen? Wait, what are you reading now? I am reading, what am I reading now? I am reading Heartbreaker. (laughs) I've heard of it. (laughs) I told Jen that she was not allowed to um, just search for the scenes with her character in them. It's been really hard to avoid it. I there's like a little, <laughs> a little like glimpse of like Imogen talking about Tommy at the beginning that I was like, okay, this is gonna get me through. <laughs> um, but listen, Adelaide and Claiborne are terrific, oh. and it is well. Don't say that yet. You're not finished. It could really go off the rails. 
it's not going to go off the rails. It's true. Unless you purposefully drive them off the rails and into the Thames where there's a train accident and Winterborne crime. Okay, no, the different. <laughs> you know what? It's terrific. I also really feel like we were, we were talking at the beginning about like action and kissing, right? I mean, this is delightful. There's a lot. There's a whole. There's a cold movie. open. There's a cold open. <laughs> There's a whole movie of a scene that happens at the beginning, and it is great. It was great. Well, um, I am looking forward to hearing more about your opinions on that. I um, have been reading these Eve Dangerfield books. Oh, she's great. Listen, she really is. And I have missed a bunch of them, so I've just been, like, quietly making my way through the Eve Dangerfield oeuvre. I'm also reading the final book. Right now I'm reading the final book in the Diana Quincy series, and I am really enjoying it. The Marquis makes his move about a lady mapmaker. Um... Okay, so that is that. This is Faded Mates. It occurs to me um, that we have a number of new listeners who might like to know that uh, I am Sarah McLean, and I write (laughs) romance novels, largely historical ones, and you... I'm Jennifer Prokop. I'm a romance reader and editor. And... And you can find us online at fatedmates.net, where you can find all sorts of information, including transcripts of our Trailblazer episodes um, and links to get merchandise and stickers and gear. Um, And you can find us on Twitter at fatedmates. Generally, you find Jen on Twitter at fatedmates. And you find me on Instagram at fatedmatespod. Um, and we love to have you. So if you follow us in either of those places, you'll hear when we drop new episodes, which come every Wednesday into your ear holes. And that is us. Thanks to this week's sponsors, Kelly Kane, author of An Acquired Taste, and Avon Books, publisher of Lindsay Sands' 34th book in the Argano series, Immortal Rising. Learn more about Kelly, Lindsay, and their books, and all of our sponsors every week in show notes. And don't miss show notes, those of you who are new to the podcast. They are comprehensive, and Jen works real hard on them, and I'm always very impressed. Have a great week, everybody.